giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with us today is Matt Massacott, creator of Chime, the new Go editor for macOS. Matt, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So you're working on Chime, which you know I just said is the new Go editor for macOS. Tell me a little bit about Chime and what your goals are for the product. Sure. So there's a million editors out there. And I think that pretty much every developer has four or five on their computer right now. Usually they have one that they prefer. And one of the things that I always have looked for for a very long time for my development experience has been something that runs on the Mac, which is a long time my platform of choice, but also focuses a lot more on polish and delivering less features well, as opposed to having a grab bag of a large number of features. And this is kind of an area that's it's very hard to find a tool that fits this exact criteria. And that was the goal of this company. So before you started working on Chime, what editor were you using? <laughs> um, well, a bunch. I think that one that was near and dear to my heart for many years was TextMate. It's one a lot of people are going to be familiar with. And I'm one of these people who was using TextMate 1 up until the moment that it was no longer supported by the operating system. Mm-hmm. And once I hit that, I realized that you know I need to have some sort of replacement for it that really feels like it matches the platform that I'm interested in using, but that also has some of the features and deep language support that, for example, TextMate never had, but something like IntelliJ or a JetBrains product has in spades. One obvious question is, why, why didn't TextMate 2 do that? for you. So for those who don't know, at some point, TextMate, the original author said, I started working on TextMate 2. Correct me if I'm wrong about the context here. I started working on TextMate 2. I'm not going to continue that as a paid product anymore. It's going to be open source. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. They changed the icon, they open sourced it. And uh, along with that, there was a number of internal changes. Uh, and it changed the feel. It's a very similar, of course, very similar application. It changed the feel of it, even though um, TextMate was profoundly influential in the editor space. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar that Visual Studio Code, which is a dominant system right now, relied for a very long time on TextMate grammars to provide a lot of its language features um, specifically related to syntax highlighting. And I know that a number of other editors support, they say we support TextMate themes and TextMate uh, grammars. It's like a, a selling point for a lot of editors. With TextMate 2, it just never felt the same. Now that I'm like deep, deep, deep in the space around building editors, I know all of, I found all of these edge cases of things that are hard to support that I've noticed that even TextMate 1 doesn't quite do correctly. So it's more just carrying on the idea. It's less about TextMate specifically not meeting my needs and more just you know a modern editor that was built specifically to feel at home on the Mac. So what were you doing before you started working on Chime? I was in Boston, where ThoughtBot was, and I was working for a small company called Crashlytics. And they were acquired by Twitter. So for many years, I was a Twitter employee. And in fact, the idea for Chime came from, I have a um, a co-founder that I work with, partner. She works in, in design. And we had been talking for a long time about collaborating, but we didn't have a good idea of what to do. And I had had this long discussion with some folks at Twitter about just what editors they have on their computer and what they like and don't like. This was like a lunchtime conversation. And I got home and I was relaying this story to her. And she said, why don't we work on an editor? And at first I was like, that's an absolutely crazy idea. There's so <laughs> many editors out there. Most of them are free. Uh, it's just a very difficult thing, I think, to get involved with. But after I initially rejected the idea, I just couldn't shake the thought that, but boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if that already existed? And that's when it kind of took hold. Well, you said exactly what was going to be my question, which is, 
how did you convince yourself to do this from a business perspective, given yeah. the text editor ecosystem? I think it was tougher. Um, also, when, when we started this initial, this initial idea was quite a while ago. I took some quite a bit of time off, actually had a baby in the meantime. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's like a life-changing thing. And so a lot of the way you're used to working, especially if you're going to be working from home, forget for yourself. Uh, it really changes a lot of things. But um, we have wrestled with, up until even just yesterday, we've talked about a million different ways that we could potentially monetize something like this. Is it a feasible business? Um, I still don't have a very definitive answer for you, but based on some feedback that I've gotten from people, I think that I can divide up developers into like two very, very, very broad categories. And one is developers who completely reject the idea of paying for any tool related to the work that they do, except for the computer itself. Everything has to be open source. Everything has to be free. It's silly to think about anything else. And then there are other people who aren't really interested in tinkering, don't have a strong feeling one way or the other about whether the tools they use themselves are open source, unless it's part of their product and they need to be able to, for example, tweak or change things. They want a tool that is like already working, built. They can just sit down and work on something and have it work. Uh, and I think that that is a minority, uh, maybe unfortunately for our company, a minority of developers, but definitely one that we're <laughs> exactly intending on catering towards. I think that Certainly, the, even the ecosystem continues to evolve, particularly because you mentioned Visual Studio Code. And I feel like that is something that has come along in the last few years and seen tremendous amount of uptake from developers. Yeah, the rise of Visual Studio Code is unbelievable. Right. And so I think that that shows that people will switch, even in a world where like there's Vim v versus Emacs. <laughs> right. People will switch. And, you know, so I used Vim exclusively for years and years and years, you know, but I'm still open to trying new things. And I'm now using Visual Studio Code because I tried it out with Vim bindings. Mm -hmm. And the overall ecosystem and what it provides is a better suit for me right now for what I'm working on. Yeah, I think that your experience is not uncommon at all. There are some diehards who will never give up a total command line experience or a pseudo command line experience with something like Vim or Emacs. And I think that that's absolutely not a problem. Some people value extremely the, the microscopic productivity. They want to be able to feel like they have really optimized their ability to manipulate the text itself. And then there's a wide range of people that want an experience that feels pretty good, that has a GUI, but that also doesn't sacrifice or maybe minimally sacrifices the pure text manipulation. And I'm assuming that you're kind of in that group. Yeah. And then there's going to be another set of people, um, which is, I think, still a relatively small group that cares a lot about the experience of using the tool as well. And maybe has. I'm an example of somebody who's been developing for a long time. I can barely get by in VI and Emacs. I can, but I don't feel maximally productive in that environment. So when it comes to Chime, what's your overall strategy or philosophy for where you're trying to hit on that spectrum? Well, I think that the actual editing experience of just manipulating text is critical because if you don't feel like you can do what you want to be able to achieve, it's a very frustrating experience. Forget having any fancy language features. But Chime just matches almost exactly the editing experience you'd get in any other text system on macOS. So I don't know if you realize this even, but um, all macOS text input views, I guess, they support Emacs key bindings. And so just mm -hmm. by default, Chime does as well. Um, but definitely the editor is not built around optimizing microscopic manipulations. It's more built around having a pleasant experience, just interacting with your code. 
So what you said there about Emacs bindings, I was actually aware of that, but I feel like it's one of those things that a lot of people aren't aware of. Yeah. But that also leads me to believe that you're not creating everything from scratch for Chime, that you're building off of things that are standard macOS components. Is that right? Yes, definitely. But there's a lot of um, customization that's gone into it. I yeah. mean, we started with like, here's a text view and the text system in macOS, which is like roughly shared between iOS and their desktop platform. It's unbelievably powerful. It's difficult to customize, but it can do a lot of things in a very mm -hmm. performant way. I wouldn't say that it's built exclusively for the use case of an editor. It's more built for something like a word processor, I think, as their first use case. Yeah. Um, but very performant, can do an enormous number of things. And that's where all of our um, text-based system is based off of. From a technical perspective, what have been the areas of biggest challenge in terms of using those components? And I know building a text editor is not easy. <laughs> <laughs> and so where was that first stumbling block that you hit along the way? The first thing we did when we, when we first, first got started was we tried to prototype. We sat down my design partner and I, we sat down and we built these mock-ups of like, what would an editor look like that we think would feel good using? And then once we had a couple of basically screenshots that we felt looked really great, I sat down and tried to implement some of them. And one of the things that Chime has, at a lot, it's this really small thing that a lot of people like. It has a line numbering gutter along the side where it just shows um, what line you're on and the colors of the line number change basically depending on the context of what's on that line. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback about this. It was a small feature, but it really got into the depth of like understanding what do you need to do in order to show line numbers to update them in a performant way as the text changes, especially for very large documents. And I think that really gets to the core of some of the challenges related to text handling is it's pretty easy to build something fast when text doesn't change. But as soon as you have the user going in there and manipulating things along the way, you have to be constantly rereading and in many cases reparsing incrementally the text that's changing and that's a very difficult thing to do even for something like line numbering where you still have to visit every single character in your document in order to understand where all the line breaks are so there's a lot of work that goes into basically getting sublinear performance as you're editing text mm -hmm. right now at least chime is focused on being an editor for the go programming language is that right mm -hmm. that's right so what went into that decision? Oh, that was a lot of, we had a lot of debates about this. So <laughs> from the beginning, the idea was it's not interesting to build just an editor, even an, ed an editor that looks good on the Mac. Those, there are plenty that exist. It had to mm -hmm. be something that also features deep language integration, something that feels we're not there yet, but more along the lines of a JetBrains product. And so to do that right away, we realized that we're going to need to have our own parsers, basically, to understand the language, to be able to build a semantic understanding of the code that you're editing. Because at the time we were doing this, there really weren't a lot of options if you wanted to have deep semantic understanding of the code, unless you were to do it yourself. And so that meant we needed to have a language that was reasonably easy to parse. We also wanted to have a language that was typed, at least somewhat typed, because that just enables some features that are much more difficult to do with an untyped language. And I wanted to pick something that I was somewhat familiar with. And so Go fit that bill. At the time, I had done a little bit of Go. I wouldn't say that I was an extensively experienced Go programmer, but I had written the compilers in the past. And so I had some experience doing parsing and working with type systems. Uh, and Go just felt like a pretty good balance between a language that was up and coming, getting really popular, had a reasonably simple syntax, and had a community that I think is receptive to tooling in general. So that's how we settled on Go to start. Mm -hmm. 
So you mentioned your design partner a few times. Their name's Tanya, right? That's right, Tanya. Yep. Was there any resistance or hesitation around the idea that you were going from something that Tanya would use themselves to something that they wouldn't use? Well, Tanya's not a developer. Is that what you right. mean? Yeah. Well, it was interesting too, because she has done design, but not a lot of digital design. This was the first mm -hmm. major, I would say, app project that she's ever looked at before. And there wasn't a lot of hesitation on her part about working on a product that she wouldn't have any direct experience working with. We did spend a lot of time. I have like just screenshot after screenshot from every editor you can think of, of here's what their find and replace looks like. Here's what their mm -hmm. autocomplete looks like. And we went through a lot of these things together, but, uh, you know, she's put a lot of trust in me, actually. She just decide, I think this is a good way to go. And she's run with it for the most part. So there hasn't been mm -hmm. too much resistance. One thing I just mentioned about find and replace was actually a big feature that you think is just like table stakes. Every editor needs to find and replace. But it's funny how many beta testers we've had that we didn't have this feature till recently and no one ever mentioned it, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> but this was one where she had a lot more input on how should this the experience be. It was less about producing pixels and more about thinking about how the interactions work. And that was a great experience for the two of us to work together and to prototype things and then work on some screenshots and then prototype more and just get a feel. And there was many cases where she would build something and then I would go prototype it and immediately realize, no, this is never going to work. It doesn't feel right because of these reasons that we never would have noticed until we had prototyped. Did you consider making an editor that was more directly what you would use as well in the, in the short term? So for example, are you writing Chime in Swift? Yes, I am. Yes, so did you question. consider making a Swift editor? I did think about that. We talked about this. You know, the thing is, Swift is an interesting case in particular, yes. because first of all, there's a large company that has a very strong financial reason to invest in Swift, tooling yes. in particular. So that's one, that's one problem. A second thing, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's actually a lot of tooling that's open source built around supporting just Swift infrastructure. So they have tooling that's been around for a long time to be able to do semantic understanding. Apple recently, much to my surprise, actually embraced language server protocol, which is this mm -hmm. like interface between a tool and the uh, language like underlying engine to be able to build semantically driven tools. Yeah. To my knowledge, Apple has not made use of this yet for their own projects, but they definitely do have a language server that you can go and run. And I have, I've tried it out. It's been interesting. But, you know, it's just a, it's a tough sell for me. I, there is someone actually working on a Swift tool right now for the Mac, but it's tougher for me to justify it because I know that it's just not an area that I think we can add a lot more value than something like Apple can. Right. It's interesting, too, because in like the Apple development circles, a lot of people actually direct a lot of hate towards Xcode, which is Apple's yes. development environment. Yep. But if you spend time scrutinizing Xcode, not necessarily whether it's stable or whether it can do all the things that you want, but just in terms of its level of polish, it's really a very impressive piece of work. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that, <laughs> that in, at least in terms of that, it would be a very hard sell. And you'd be taking what might be already a challenge to get a good audience for your product mm -hmm. and potentially holding it back even more. Yeah. Another factor related to the choice of language is you also want to build something that's going to be useful. And so it's tough to build something for Swift because you're immediately going, I want to build an iOS app, but you need all this build. There's a bunch of um, systems yep. besides just the actual code itself that you need right. to deliver something. And so it's right. just harder to build uh, the whole package for Swift than it would be for something like Go, where most people's um, development experience 
is around building something and then compiling from the command line, deploying from the command line. And yep. really the only interaction you need is the actual editing of, of the source. Right. You basically need your editor and a terminal. That's right. So when it comes to Chime and telling people about it publicly, that this was a thing that existed, how long ago did you do that? Well, a long time ago. And that was actually one of the mistakes that we made from a company perspective. Mm -hmm. I think it was a misstep, but there's this baby coming. And so I knew that I was going to be unavailable for quite a while. And so we had these like specific things. We're going to try to finish something right before we're taking time off. And um, we did. We had this prototype ready and we announced a beta. We had a blog post that got quite, quite a bit of interest, actually. Got a large number of beta testers in a short period of time. Um, and I think the mistake that we made was we were really rushing towards having a certain level of experience from the UI. We wanted the UI to look a certain way and not to be screenshots. We wanted to put up only real functioning UI in our marketing material. And our, mm -hmm. on our website. And I think that we focused so much on that that we didn't take a step back and just start using the editor over a long period of time to make sure that it felt good. And so we shipped this beta that had a lot of performance issues. It had a lot of bugs. And I think that we shipped it too early just because we had this, of course, real um, deadline we wanted to meet. But that was something that I think we did too quickly. Well, yeah, but people often say that if you don't feel like you, that you've shipped too early, then you've shipped too late. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. What is it? They say you're supposed to be embarrassed a little bit by whatever you yeah, ship. Right. So when was that? Well, it was probably a year and a half ago. So how have things gone since then? Well, a lot of work was pretty much paused during the time we, we were with our baby. Raising a new and, human. Yeah, 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 raising a new human. And then we started picking up work a little bit more seriously. I would say I would say last summer, we started getting a little bit more serious and then really kind of kicked it into high gear in the last six months. And the thing that was interesting about this is taking this time off. You know, the world doesn't stand still while you have a baby. It feels like it should because being a parent <laughs> is a very tough thing to do. But mm -hmm. during that time, we talked briefly about Visual Studio Code and Language Server Protocol. But during that time, Visual Studio Code just continued to gain tremendous momentum. Yeah. And Language Server Protocol, which is this, um, I talked about this interface between uh, semantically driven tooling and the language itself, has gained a lot of popularity. And so we actually faced this really interesting kind of like conundrum. We were saying, well, okay, we are building our own stuff and it's very capable and performant in many ways, but is missing a lot of features that would be just in terms of time, incredibly expensive for us to do ourselves. And meanwhile, there are these servers. In the case of Go, there's three or four that some capabilities that they provide now are far inferior to what we can deliver. But there are many things that they can do that would take us so long to build and would be difficult to catch up with as the language changes itself. Doesn't really scale if we wanted to move into multiple languages. So we started our app now is like a hybrid, basically, of language server protocol, our own custom stuff. And it's all like kind of glued together into the UI, which at the time I was kind of disappointed by because I felt like one of the selling points of our mm -hmm. app was the performance and our customization. But now I think of it completely as a strength because it actually highlights exactly what we wanted to do product-wise, which is it's got all this complicated stuff internally that many people are sitting at their desk manually tweaking their editors to use some new language server protocol build of their favorite language. And we've all wrapped that up. You don't even see that that's happening. We've mm -hmm. combined all these things um, together into, into the final version that you use. Does that mean that you're going to be able to add support for future languages by doing the same thing? Well, yeah, superficially, yes. But in mm -hmm. practice, I have found language server protocol is tough. So it's not a magic solution that you can just drop in this new binary and all of a sudden you support Python and then drop in another one right. and then you support Swift. It's actually a tremendous amount of work to support a new language. Additionally, 
language server protocol, the specification is owned by the Visual Studio Code team, but it's very, mm-hmm. very open-ended and very loose. So even in the Go ecosystem, I'm aware of, I've used three different Go language servers. They all work tremendously differently. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not great for interoperability today, but it could be, it could get there for sure. We've talked around a few things that, that I want to clarify. So is Tanya also your life partner? Yes, <laughs> yes, okay. she is. So you had the baby together. We did have the baby together, that's right. <laughs> okay, and so <laughs> you took time off from working on Chime together, and you're both working on Chime together. That's right. Does Tanya have another job besides Chime, or are you working on it full-time? No, the, the two of us, of this is all we're doing. Okay, so how how are you making that work from a family perspective? Yeah, well, we're still kind of learning how to do that. Mm-hmm. It used to be pre-baby, we would sit together and work together all day, every day. And now we rarely do that. It does happen. Um, when we get babysitting, we mostly take care of the baby ourselves. So either I'll be watching him and she'll be working or vice versa. Mm-hmm. We were facing this point where... Um, you know, just, I mean, just life works out funny, but we had gotten really serious about, we want to try to make our own product, do our own thing, have our own company. And we also have this baby on the way. We were living in Boston. We just realized that it's just not really feasible for us. I think that for us, we just needed the help of having family around to be able to help with the child, help with just getting some aid so that we can have time to work. And so we kind of like rearranged our entire life around continuing to do this product. Yeah. Um, we moved closer to family to be able to do that. And how are you making it work financially? Well, we had um, been pretty lucky and been able to save up enough to have a pretty substantial runway, I think, just for individuals. But mm-hmm. we realized quickly, once the baby arrived, that it's just never, it's never going to work. We were going to run out of time. So we moved. We're both originally from Montreal, Canada. And mm-hmm. when we started looking into this to get help with the baby, but also we're like, I wonder if this can be better financially. It was actually incredible what a difference it made our monthly expenses were a fraction of what they were in Mm -hmm. Boston. So that's helped us have the time to be able to do this. We we can't do it forever, but thankfully, we're actually getting fairly close to a release. So hopefully, um, we won't need to hold on for too much longer. Yeah. So you don't have outside investors or anything like that? No. I mean, that was one of the things right from the beginning we decided was, it is a thing that we could do. And I think that it's a pretty interesting market potentially for investment, but it just wasn't a match for what we, what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. We're catering to a small market. We really want to do something that's going to make us proud and to feel like if you're a diehard Mac user who also happens to be a developer, you're going to love this kind of thing. And that just might not be the largest market. So right now you can register interest to be part of beta testing? That's right. Did you consider doing more of a crowdfunding kind of thing in order to raise money from interested people, basically allowing them to pre-order it? We've talked about a lot of different things. We never considered it mm-hmm. seriously. Mm-hmm. I had a, um, a friend who's given me a lot of advice, uh, founded a different company doing a totally different thing. Um, and he was telling me about how in the game industry, I'm less familiar with this, but in the game industry, it's not that uncommon for people to pay up front and to basically get access to like a, a sneak peek into what the company is doing, actually mm-hmm. doing the development. And he was trying to press me into saying, I think you should do that too. Have maybe some emails or some extra screenshots to just get like a peek into the development process itself. And that a lot of people enjoy mm-hmm. seeing that. We seriously considered that. And I think actually we may launch the product in the sense that it's available for the general um, public and also is paid, but that it's not necessarily finished. And I think that the way that we'll architect that is kind of like marrying it to our business model, which is mm-hmm. that 
Are you familiar with the, the app Sketch? It's yeah. a design tool. Yeah, so Sketch has a fascinating business model in that you basically pay for subscription to their updates. So you pay your fee, and for a year, you get updates to the app. And then when that right. year is up, if you don't renew your license, you just stop getting updates. You, you, but you keep whatever right. version you originally paid mm-hmm. for. This is a super interesting and compelling business model for many different kinds of apps, I think. I think it's personally a shame that Apple doesn't support this natively um, on their app store. Right. But we're going to adopt kind of a similar sort of approach. And I think what we'll do is we'll say, you can, you can buy the app, but it's version 0.9. And your license, the time is only going to start counting once we ship a 1.0. Okay, yeah. If that makes any sense. So it's a little bit yeah. of a sneak peek. You are paying to be able to use it, but you'll get more than a year because you'll get it from whenever we ship the 1.0. That's when the time actually starts. So roughly how many beta testers do you have now? Oh man, the list is big. Um, maybe it's 200, but um, mm-hmm. the number of people, and you probably experienced this too, a lot of people will express interest and then a very right. small number of people will actually get back to you with usable feedback. Yeah. I don't know, but I wonder if people were paying for it, <laughs> whether they would be more active. Oh, probably, because there's much more of an invested interest in seeing it be yeah. good. If you pay, you're obviously interested in the concept, so then you feel like you can kind of influence the direction a little bit. Are you planning on releasing on the Mac App Store? You know, we've talked about it to death because um, there's many reasons why the Mac App Store is good. Uh, It takes care of payment. It takes care of a lot of other aspects. But unfortunately, among the many problems there, so first of all, you cannot support this particular business model. It's just impossible with the App Store. You could do it if if you released every major version as its own app. Well, yes, that's true. I suppose that kind of counts. That is true. And there are some apps that do that. It doesn't feel great to me, but you're right. You could do it that way. Yeah, but the downside would is people wouldn't automatically renew. If right, they wanted to do it, they would have to then buy the, the new one. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting idea. But unfortunately, there's also a big technical limitation, which is, you know, about the Mac App Store has this sandboxing requirement. Mm-hmm. And so an editor, and a specifically something that has some sort of IDE features, will often need to interact with and open and read many files on your disk, not necessarily just ones that are in your project, but maybe some that are built into the language standard library itself. And this model is really tough to support with sandboxing. I don't think that it's impossible, and we've done a bunch of experiments to try to see if it can be done, but it's very tough to support with sandboxing. So do you have a sense of then you're probably not going to be on the Mac App Store. You're going to do it yourself. Yeah, for sure we won't be. And this was actually this project that we had worked I'm working on this right now, which is like supporting licensing and payment. And I had kind of assumed at the time, you know, there's got to be somebody out there that just makes these. You just must be a drop-in solution. I can go and find some SaaS company that provides payment for a Mac application. And they, they do exist. But they only really support one-time upfront purchase models. And if you want to do anything more complicated, you have to do quite a lot of business logic yourself, the Mm -hmm. actual payment and licensing generation. And so that's something that I'm working on now. It's actually my opportunity to write some real Go code because there's a bunch of server-side stuff I have to do. Uh Aha. There you go. You're writing Go. Yep. (laughs) So you're not using a SaaS thing and then augmenting it. You're just, you've decided to just do your own thing. I would love to hear from somebody if there is, but my understanding is there isn't really a SaaS product that solves the whole problem. There's lots of payment processors. And the, mm-hmm. the thing we're using is by a company called Paddle. Paddle is the one that I'm familiar with. Yep, yep. So Paddle does the payment processing. They'll also distribute. They can take care of issuing licenses, mm-hmm. but only if your licensing model is one of those like hexadecimal keys that you deliver to the user. Right. And uh, it just doesn't really fit exactly what we want to do. 
So you're using some parts of Paddle, but not others? Yeah, we're using Paddle for the payment specifically, yeah. but we're going to be issuing the license ourselves. I was still, I was huh. so surprised. I like hopped into a Slack channel where a bunch of um, Apple developers are hanging out in, and I was like, okay, guys, what do you use to do payment? And everybody, every independent developer said, we make our own system. Right. I was yeah. so surprised to hear that. Did you talk to Paddle about the potential of making changes to support what you wanted to do? Yes, I did. It was a while ago that I spoke to them, but I think they understand that models like what Sketch is doing are becoming increasingly popular. And it's something that they're interested in supporting, but right now they don't support it fully. Yeah. I agree that the Sketch model makes a lot of sense, particularly for things like Sketch or you know, like Chime, which... If you're a working designer or developer, a designer in the case of Sketch, like you're using it all the time and you care about it, you know, there's almost a sense of community around it as well. And so it really pays into that as well. Mm -hmm. So if you can play into that, it makes a lot of sense. But then also from a, in a world where software subscriptions are becoming a thing, I think that the model is a good compromise because you're saying you're not going to lose access if you stop paying. You get to keep what you have today if you stop paying, which is not the case for a lot of subscriptions. And I think it helps developers and designers feel more comfortable with what they're buying. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think that that little distinction is absolutely essential. It removes that, in some cases, viscerally negative reaction to subscriptions that people have. If they aren't perceiving that you have an ongoing cost, and that perception is critical, if they don't perceive that, Mm -hmm. they don't feel like subscriptions for the most part are justified. And I've had that experience too. And so I really felt like, well, I'm not going to even start building something that has um, a one-time upfront payment. That system is just, in my opinion, doesn't work at all. So um, we have to have some sort of subscription. And we talked a lot about maybe we're going to build some server-side components. And so it feels like there's a reason why you might want to pay for a long term. But in the end, we just thought, why don't we just build something that's similar to Sketch, which is what Tanya was using to do all her um, design work anyways. It feels really good. And you don't lose anything if you stop paying. You can totally treat it like a one-time payment system if that's what you want. I think we're going to go even further than what Sketch does. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Sublime. It's a, a very popular also editor. Mm-hmm. And Sublime, you can download it and use it forever without paying. And all that really happens is there's a little badge that says your app is not registered. Right. And I think that we're going to go a similar route, which is you can use Chime, you can download it, you can use it. Eventually, it will let you know that it's unregistered. But I think instead of limiting or otherwise hobbling the product, it's going to keep on working. And it's just going to basically let you know in some subtle but noticeable way that uh, you're no longer registered. That's an interesting choice. It feels like a risk. It totally is. <laughs> it to- we have debates about this constantly. You know, I mean, I'm, what do you think? So the problem that I worry about is there's so many free options that are extremely high right. quality. And mm-hmm. it could be, let's just say that, I mean, I like to think, but let's just say that Chime is the best editor you've ever used. But there are other editors that are very, very, very close that you probably already have installed on your system. And you get that dialogue that says, oh, your trial is up. I'm sorry, you're going to have to pay now. And you think, okay, well, I just don't feel like paying right now. I'll just use something else again. It'll be fine. And so I think that I would rather have some users that don't pay than not have those users at all. You think that's the wrong choice? It's obviously hard to know. You can say that there are a lot of people who probably use Sublime that if forced to pay for it, they would. Mm -hmm. But they're not forced, so they don't. Yep. And... When you give that option of completely not paying and, and having it not be limited anyway, there's a risk that, especially for what we can assume will be 
especially at first, a small audience with Chime yep. that you run the risk of you're not getting enough people to pay and so you can't continue working on it. Yeah. No amount of, oh, we, we've got more people than we expected using it is necessarily going to mean you can keep on working on it if well, they're not paying you. You're absolutely right. Okay, so let me pitch you another idea then. So suppose, <laughs> yeah. suppose that instead of limiting the product, some apps just turn off completely and no longer function, mm-hmm. or they might limit the, um, the capabilities. Suppose that instead it would say, well, if you're an unregistered user, all the capabilities that you have today continue to work, but in a future update, we might release some new feature that you have to wait before you can use. So let's say we add yeah. debugging support. It's a very commonly requested thing. Registered users get it today, but if you're an unregistered user, you have to wait until we like decide, let's say a year from now, that we unlock debugging for unregistered users. And so we always have this um, extra carrot that we can dangle to kind of keep people along without having to cut them yeah. off completely. That's really interesting. I don't know off the top of my head of another product that does that, do you? You know, I don't. Maybe that's a bad sign. No, oh, well, you never know. Um, I can think of some sort of open source examples where that might be the case. So for example, like MySQL Community Edition versus Commercial Edition might do this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or Sidekick, which is a queuing system. Yep. I don't know if you're familiar. They sort of have a commercial version and an open source version, and they might hold off putting things in the open source version for a while. I'm not 100% sure of that, so if that's wrong, <laughs> let me know. No, I don't, I don't know, but it sounds like a very reasonable model to use. Yeah. So that's definitely interesting, and it provides you know some incentive to upgrade without completely shutting people off from the product. I guess the devil would be in the detail of whether it annoys people. <laughs> like if it's like, well, forget you, <laughs> you're you're withholding something from me mm-hmm. and I don't like that. The way I would go about it, that is talking to people. For sure. I think so. I think a lot of independent developers have had this experience of there's so <laughs> many stories of apps that have migrated from an upfront paid to a subscription. They've had a lot of lessons and a lot of interesting stories that have come up there. Yeah. I don't know what'll happen. You know, if you look at Sketch, so Sketch is one of the apps that you just stop getting updates. The app freezes. And it's such a great model, except when you think about that there's all kinds of new features and new bug fixes that your existing users aren't getting now. And they might start feeling, Mm -hmm. ah, you know, Sketch, I paid for it a couple times, but I don't feel like it's that great anymore. Do they feel that way because they stopped paying and they aren't getting these latest features? And then when you have competitors, and Sketch does, credible competitors that don't cost anything, That's tough, right? Because you want to put your best foot forward constantly. You constantly want to have the best product that you can release in the user's hands today. And you can't do that if you cut them off from updates. Yeah. I think the thing you need to be careful of is in the model where it doesn't stop working and you don't stop getting updates, you're just choosing not to pay. What is the difference? Am I just literally, is it donations just to support the development of the software at that point? And from what I know, those models are not super successful. Yeah. It might be enough, though, to support you. And if your goal is to build something that you and Tanya can work on and that it can support your family and that kind of thing, which is a very noble goal, there's nothing wrong with that, it might be enough to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, this is something that we were just talking about recently, and this is what we're leaning towards. I'm working on this area of Yap right now. We're like finishing up licensing. And um, you know, you're you're making me think. I'm not sure what we'll do. Some things are are very hard to take back, though. Yes, absolutely. And if you do go out of the gate with that, you can keep on using it forever, even if you're not paying. That's harder to take back than, oh, it's now you can keep on using it even if you don't pay. 
you're, you're absolutely right. We did talk about this. I think that we were leaning more towards the idea of as we deliver new features over time, restricting their rollout until mm -hmm. some time passes. And that's not something that you're taking away. It's something that you're adding. So you don't lose anything. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's also, it's also a question of getting some feedback. It's hard to get feedback on pricing models until you have people paying. Yeah. So how close are you to needing to make these decisions and actually doing this release? You know, we left it like everybody does. We left the actual payment and licensing system to the end. So I'm working on that right now and it's coming along. I'm hopeful that by the end of the summer, we have something that is purchasable and that feels good enough to be actually purchased. And then where do you think you're going from there? You know, where's the next area of expansion or challenge? So there's a lot of features that people love in Visual Studio Code that we've gotten feedback mm -hmm. from that are missing in Chime today. And I think that we would start filling in some of those gaps to just make it feel more and more compelling. I think that I'm always open to the idea of supporting another language, like something like Python, for example. Go and Python are a very common combination. Mm -hmm. But I would prefer to dial in the Go experience first before moving to another language because it is a lot of work. And what happens if you're building a Go app and you open an HTML file? So it opens and is editable, but you don't get any sort of like rich support mm -hmm. for HTML specifically. Mm -hmm. It'd be funny if you didn't even open. <laughs> I mean, I could make it do that, but... <laughs> that might be a little extreme. Yeah. Well, Matt, it's been really interesting talking to you. I feel like you're just on the cusp of a very exciting time for <laughs> your product. Yeah. And hopefully this conversation has been useful for you. And I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed it. So thank you for sharing with us. I hope so. It has been great. Um, if people want to check out Chime, get on the beta list, or if they're listening to this after it launches, actually get it. Where's the best place for them to do that? Well, you can check out information about the product at ChimeHQ.com. We're also at ChimeHQ on Twitter. Mm -hmm. If you want to ask me questions about it, I'm at Maddie, M-A-T-T-I-E on Twitter as well. Matt, thanks again. I wish you the best of luck. Please keep in touch. Thank you so much. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.